it sounds like the uh, international underwater cables are working appropriately or else some some awesome satellite that we're beaming down off of um, and the magic of the interwebs so I've got uh, I got you both here right so so we've got uh, tested recording and we, we know we're good yeah we're good let's go okay awesome okay. let's kick it off all right good morning good afternoon good evening everyone welcome to the hot aisle this is episode number 14. My name is Brent Piatti, and with me is my co-host. My name is Brian Carpenter. How y'all doing? All right. Great. So today, the goal of the show is to educate you on the world of tech journalism and peek behind the scenes to see how it's done. In addition, we want to get some perspective on the IT landscape, the EMC Federation, VMworld, and then also some sports cars from one of the greats. And that great that we have with us today is Chris Millor. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing? Good morning, Brent. Good morning, Brian. I'm doing very well, but decidedly feeling embarrassed about the bigging up going on here. I'm just a reporter. That's all. <laughs> just a reporter. We like to think of you as a uh, technical paparazzi. You know, you're, you, 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 seem to, you seem to have all the pictures of the wedding before anybody else is even allowed to go. I like the paparazzi idea. I like the idea of be sleezing around, looking at around people's backsides and behinds. Oops, that didn't come out right. <laughs> We're not going to edit it out, but he didn't mean it the way he said it. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, Chris, do us a favor. Uh, we know you pretty well. Uh, we stalk you on Twitter, but for everybody who may not know you, or at least doesn't know uh, you, maybe the name with the article, uh, tell us a little bit about you. Okay, I started out in the IT industry a few years ago working for some companies that subsequently failed. Digital Equipment Corporation, into Compaq, into HP. Santa Cruz Operation, into Ransom Love's Domain, into permanent suing people for compensation of some sort or another. And then Unisys, which is still, I don't want to be rude, is still surviving, shrinking, but still surviving. Then into journalism. Uh, you want to know why I went into journalism, of course. Yeah. I, got, I got fired. I got made redundant by the Santa Cruz operation. And I'd been sending articles to their salespeople and their channel salespeople in Olivetti and Bull and other companies saying how great Santa Cruz operation was and how they could make their numbers by selling our Unix instead of their own crappy products. Well, they weren't crappy products, but ours was better. So I figured I was never going to climb the greasy pole because... Frankly, I look like you two guys, right? You know, no tie, no suit, stains on the shit. No, no, no. <laughs> so I went. Into, I took the redundancy money and went into journalism. And Lord be praised, you can make a go of it if you can write barely, and if you've got a background for the industry and can put things in context. And it just went on from there. It was brilliant. And with the Register, boy, what a place to write from! It's absolutely wonderful. So you're saying you like it there? <laughs> I have a little bit of a comfortable gig here, to say the very least. That's awesome. So seven years at L. Reg. Now, is there anything? I mean, give us a little deep, you know, inside secret. What I mean, L. Reg doesn't seem very UK of it. So how did it get the nickname, or do you guys even know? Uh, the register used to be a daily register of events in the IT industry, sent out as an emailed, printed. News, sorry, as a mailed printed newsletter, then as an emailed newsletter, and then it became an online magazine. So it's just kept the name as a register. And there's a history in the UK of papers being called registers. I dare say there are some in the USA as well that have got that name. Mm -hmm. 
So the uh, the El Reg is that just a good um, I don't know Latin American nickname or is it uh, does it have any specific meaning or no it's just mocking we don't take ourselves too seriously so the image of the magazine is a vulture we call ourselves El Reg or even ruder names in private <laughs> well we'll talk about those some other time um, well it, that's that's awesome stuff and you know there is. You also did a little bit of work, I think, for uh, IDG's tech world. What is like? How would you compare and contrast what you're doing today at El Reg versus <laughs> what Tech World was? Tech World's a professionally run organization. It's IDG after all, so there tends to be fairly good control on what journalists write, when, and so on and so forth. But the Register, I've got such a wonderful gig. I can basically write what I like about the storage industry. I pump out a minimum of three articles a day, sometimes much more, and I just have a whale of a time doing it. And hey, I'm paid to do this stuff. This is wonderful. Yeah, I love that stuff. Um, so you know, we really want to. We're going to get in touch with a lot of things about what you're doing today. Um, we're also going to kind of give people a little bit of a sneak peek into the whole comment around sports cars and building you up because. Uh, in, in researching you and digging into you and, and doing the, our own version of uh, sneaking around the backside. The paparazzi. Um, yeah, we found, <laughs> we found a lot of really interesting things about you. And frankly, we found so much content to consume. It was, it was impossible because we do have jobs uh, where we go out with our stained shirts that have a little mustard on them to go meet with customers. So, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and get in here a little bit onto some of our questions around your day job. Um, but you know, be ready because we're also going to talk about that, uh, that passionate side hobby that you have. <laughs> okay. Okay. He said with a wary tone to his voice, <laughs> it's not that bad, <laughs> but, uh, at the beginning of the show, what we like to do, Chris is, uh, kick off something we call this week in, in tech history. And, uh, so September 4th, 1956, the IBM 350 disc storage unit model one was announced. Um, this was the first commercial storage unit to use magnetic disk storage and the technology basically behind uh, hard disk drives. So it's about the size of two refrigerators mm. and weighed in about one ton. And uh, it could store four to five megabytes, and depending how it was calculated. And it was interesting uh, because in my research of you for this, for this podcast, I read an article that you posted a few days ago called Dog Walkers the San Andreas Fault in the storage industry. And on the third page of that article, you had a picture of the IBM 350. Um, so it was just very serendipitous. I think that, that IBM invention of the disk drive was wonderful. There are still people around who are involved with that today, like Mike Workman, who's working for Oracle now, came via Pillar, did the Axiom disk drive array. And there are many others as well. Those disk drives were so, so influential. They revolutionized the whole... The disk storage industry wouldn't exist today without that. Yeah. But I just had the feeling that a combination of flash memory, PCIe fabrics, things like really fast non-volatile memory, like Intel Micron's Crosspoint, could be about as transformative to the industry as the original disk drives, and I'll say Toshiba's invention of flash in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. We've we've definitely got that uh, coming up in the show notes. So let's save that for a little bit later. But let's jump into kind of your career at El Reg, right? So so first of all, have you quantified the number of articles that you've made at the Register, right? I mean, mm. you 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 you've written just in the past you know twenty four hours. 
four, if not five articles. Uh, and I, and I did a, another search that said you, you've written probably 4,000 articles at the register. So where are you at today? I, the last time I looked, it was around 3,000, and that was doing the standard Google search. I just don't count them. There's no obvious way on the register system of finding out the number of them I've done. So I guess 4,000 is probably about right. Seven oh, years, okay. so many days a week, and so on. I hear, I hear an opportunity to send a little bit of uh, analytics work over towards the L Regis way to help <laughs> them out. So uh, note to that, you know, you give us a call if you ever need some help on that. Um, and so there, there was a time when you were writing, I mean, you're kind of, you're in the reg now, um, but you were, you were blocks and files, right? And you were writing there. Um, what, what caused, what caused this acquisition of you? Um, you know, the aqua hire, whatever it may be, were they looking for your name, your customer base, your information? What were they, what were they targeting? They were looking for my name and the article sister had written, um, the whole episode was what you call coming up to face-to-face with reality in a really meaningful way. Because I thought blocks and files could be self-sustaining with adverts and paid-for white papers and so on and so forth. So there was I sitting in my little bedroom office with no salesperson, no admin person, no accountant, no nobody. And of course, none of what I hoped to happen would happen. So I had a wonderful time, but money was pouring out of the window. And then along came the register. Thank you very much, Drew Cullen. It was a rescue. So, and that's, I guess that's uh, one of our other questions. It leads to, um, you know, do they normally go out and find somebody who's kind of got an established base and, and rescue them uh, from their, their pay-per-click advertising? Or, oh. or do they, uh, is there a lot of uh, direct hires? Um, or, you know, how do you, how do you guys normally find everybody that's on your team, right? You've got a, you've got a segment of LREG, but how did your peers get in? Um, sometimes they get in by recommendation from existing reg writers. Uh, sometimes they're just good people around. They're looking for something, and they're either recruited directly or they're recruited indirectly just to come to us. And I know a couple um, I've said, go work for the reg. Come work for the reg. It'll be great. And they've fitted in really, really well. So you, you guys pick people, obviously, for, for different reasons. Um, you know, having read your articles... Uh, you know, I see that you have a particular style, and, and I would say that style is you know not holding any punches uh, and just very straightforward. Um, so was that was that part of the reason that they they looked to hire you, or was there some something else about your style um, that they that they really liked and wanted oh, this to? Is, this this is getting really embarrassing. Um, I think they liked the, the comprehensive background knowledge I had about the storage industry, and, and the Reds could see that storage was going to be and was then important. It's become even more important since then. I don't think my writing style is particularly good. The Reg likes factual independent comment. We've got writers like Trevor Pott who are absolutely wonderful at that. Simon in Australia, is good. I, you just, everybody at the Reg works really well and independently and there's, there's no, we'll just take a press release and pump it out and believe everything a vendor says. It's always, always look behind the scenes and see what's going on. Sure. Sure, and I and I think that's just part of good investigative journalism, right? So you're you're using those techniques to uh, to make sure that you're not just you know to your point, sending out the same stuff that another company has put out, regurgitating the same stuff. You're adding you're adding some value value content to that. Mm-hmm. There was a, an article about an Oracle new all flash version of their FS1 array. and it sounded absolutely great. It was supposed to be a ground up redesign. From my point of view, that's 
real nonsense. It was the same as your FS1 Stroke 2 array. Just take the disk drives out, basically use the same kit and software. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that story before. So apart from the obvious, Chris, uh, that the register hired you for, you know, talk about um, you know, the storage industry, if, as it were. Are you still doing what they intended for you to do? Or, or have you branched out into, into new fields? Uh, no, I've, I've, I've started little side branches occasionally, like machine learning or something, but they quickly revert back to the mainstream. <clears throat> Storage is so fascinating. There's so much going on. I can't cover the ground. There are numerous other people at the range doing storage as well. We managed to have, because of that, a 24-hour cover. Storage is it. Storage is so, so important. It's, it's pretty consuming, really. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we think it's pretty important, too. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, but the, you know, w- what we really want to understand from you, and I, this is kind of important to me, is um, you, you probably, when you go to work to every day, like I go to work and do some things, but I really have another thing that drives me when I go to work. So is there something like what you feel is like an underlying mission of your responsibilities, like an undertone of what you think you're doing for both your employer, whether that be uh, driving clicks uh, to the industry, whether that be, you know, telling them that they're stupid and needing to disrupt or whatever it may be, or for customers to expose information. So, you know, I've, I've given some information on what I think you might do, but, you know, tell me, you know, what it is you that drives you every day that has nothing to do with your job title. Oh, this is a little bit heavy, but I think it's trying to join in the dots. There is so much going on. There are so many little dot events in the industry all around it. And trying to join, join those dots together and work out, try to work out what's going on and present a picture of what's going on, either overall, as with the Dog Walkers article, or with individual product announcements or staff changes at companies and so on. The whole area is just so fascinating and so utterly confusing. It's like a blizzard of information hitting everybody. And if I can do my little bit to add a little bit of clarity to that, then I think that's worthwhile doing. It's as simple as that, really, Brian. Okay. And so, but there are times where um, I see you acting as um, an antagonist. Um, Sometimes you'll act... um, I don't know if is profit the right word or is it, you know, like a, uh, you know, pontificating about things that are going on. Uh, and I used all the big words I know, so I'll stop now, but are there, <laughs> are there different, are there different roles uh, that you play to try to, you know, try to get that information out there uh, with a goal behind them other than just presenting the information? <sighs> there are, there are times when it seems that, whatever's going on in the storage industry is not specifically a storage issue. And it's something that anybody with what I'd call common sense would find odd. For example, there was a time when Joe Tucci flew by private jet to some customer event to talk about how green EMC was. That seemed to me such a ludicrous way of carry going on about things that it couldn't, it couldn't stand without being commented on. And then there's the what's happened today with Seagate laying people off. I do feel that, that <laughs> this is personal, that stockholders are, giving, are given far too much importance in storage companies. But that's, that's not just a storage issue. That's across the USA. It's across UK as well. And the way people, to my mind, are somewhat casually dismissed in their thousands while stockholders get share buybacks and dividends and so on, I think 
speaks to just how unbalanced the industry is in terms of the interest of all the various stakeholders. But that's just me sitting here using what I'd call common sense and what other people might well call bias and a sense of unreality. I don't know. And well, and that's great. And we will, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of the things where, um, you know, you, you want to call people out for what they deserve to be called out on. And frankly, um, it's not wrong. Uh, so I, I think it's fantastic in certain cases. It always hurts a little bit when the, when it, when the, when the article's pointed in your direction, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, I, I'd, um, if criticism comes right back, then that's great because I'm not, I'm not Mr. Noel. And if I have the opportunity to learn by somebody standing up and saying, you know what, you're absolutely wrong about this because of one, two, three, then that's wonderful. That's great. Because I come at this, but we're all nice folks in the storage industry. We're all reasonable. We're all smart. We all love what we're doing. And the better we can get together and understand what we're all doing, the better it is for everybody. Yeah, I would agree with that, Chris. And I, and I think that uh, that openness to not only <clears> – <throat> portraying what you believe to be the truth, but being able to, to learn um, and be, be open to um, actually hearing what you could have been wrong at um, probably makes you a, a good journalist. So with that in mind, um, you know, we know that your focus is storage. Uh, when you know, a new piece of technology or even existing technology um, you know, makes an update or whatever, what's your methodology um, when it comes to reviewing these different platforms, are you are you relying on uh, just you know a bunch of investigative journalism, or is there something on the back end that that you know the register does to help you in your endeavor to truly uh, understand the uniqueness uh, you know of a product set? Well, the answer is files, baby, files, and specifically spreadsheet files. So I have a, a spreadsheet which is just a, a list of contacts in the industry, who's working for whom, where they've come from. So if a company announces that it's got a new VP hardware management, I go look in the files and find out, oh, what's happened to the old one? Why did he leave? And so on and so forth. If a new product comes out, ah, I go look in the files for that product, whether it's a tape drive, tape format, disk array, flash array, basic disk drive, aerial density, and so on and so forth. And because I've got that information recorded over time, I can stick a new product into context quite quickly. And then it's a case of sitting back and looking at it and thinking, well, why does it differ in aerial density from that disk drive product? How many platters does it have? Oh, it's helium filled. What on earth does that mean? And so on and so forth. It's just, um, just looking in the back pages of encyclopedias, so to speak, and putting one and two together. And hopefully you come up with four instead of minus two or five. Sure. And, and how much of the, um, you know, your, your journalism in, involves interviewing perhaps the, the creator of the product or the product manager before releasing an article? A little bit. So, um, sometimes with a, with a straightforward new product announcement, then as long as you can get to the data sheet and so forth, then it's okay. The, the interviews with people like CTOs, product managers, and CEOs, if I'm lucky enough, tend to be more for background. So VMworld was a recently good example of that, where I was able to see lots and lots of the CTOs and CEOs and chief marketing officers and companies and quiz them about things like cross-point memory, whether flash is going to replace disk, 
what do they think of software-defined storage and so on, and pick up the background to that information. So I've got reams of notes about that, and it's all flagged away inside my leaky little memory, and I'll be able to use that in future. So we're all, you know, we're all human here, uh, and we tend to, you know, by nature, we tend to gravitate towards certain things. So do you tend to find yourself um, having actual personal favorites? Maybe you're, I mean, maybe you are 100%, you know, above board in your articles. Uh, behind the scenes, do you have personal favorites? You don't have to call them out. Uh, uh, the, of the technologies that you've reviewed over the years or even currently? Um, I have a consumer's dislike of tape because doing tape backups off a PC was tedious beyond belief and difficult. Having moved to Flash iMacs and Flash MacBooks, I have a real liking of Flash memory as well because it's so very, very fast. Uh, just booting up systems, the responsiveness of them and so forth makes me realize that Flash has got an awful lot going for it. And it's reliable enough for my purposes. Software, I like Apple because it uh, it works. It's all fitted together, but nothing else, no, no, no other preference apart from that. Okay. And I, I, see you, I see you call yourself out like when you get, um, you know, I guess funded to go somewhere and do something that results in an article. Um, how, do you, how do you manage to... Um, I guess what separates the the funding of y your travel versus your ob your objectivity um, besides your own credibility? What else What else do you put in place to help with that? It's a great great question, Brian. Because if I'm flown to some event like a, a Delvin event or a VMworld event, then I feel duty bound to take advantage of the event and write what I can. But I certainly feel don't feel duty bound to write anything necessarily positive about the supplier. Um, I won't accept money for going to events like that. I won't accept fees for giving presentations at events like that. But on the other hand, Next Center, Dell, and other companies are ever so nice and pay for my travel and accommodation expenses. Um, generally, it doesn't. I don't think. I didn't think it mattered with with straightforward reporting. With the Next Center event, the Open SDX Summit, where I gave a presentation, I thought, well. That really is a little bit over the edge or on the edge, so I felt I had to call it out. And to be honest, most of the good bloggers these days put out little statements about how they were invited to Tech Field Day or some other event like that, just to make it absolutely clear that they're not trying to hide who covered their travel and accommodation costs and so forth. And I think that's a really good idea. I think you should be open about things like that. I want to, I want to go back, Chris, to, to the comment you made about tape. Um, and just see if I can get a bit more context. I read an article that you wrote, I don't think it was that long ago, um, regarding object storage and the inability at the time to back up to tape. Um, do, you, do you still think that that is... Um, I, I don't think that that functionality is missing anymore. I did some quick search on, on it. Mm -hmm. But um, is, is that even valuable anymore, just kind of based on your comment? I think you can now certainly back up object storage to tape. Um, Quantum have got their Storenext product, which can take information off an object storage system and stick it onto tape by a somewhat roundabout method. Tape still has a heck of a lot going for it in terms of its cost per gigabyte. It probably is the lowest cost storage going, and it's probably going to retain that for a long, long time. Okay, that's a fair that's a fair statement. Just wanted to you know again understand the comment and then some of the the, the past the past. Oh, um, could I jump in? Yes, um, Brent, of course. I, I, I figured that object storage 
tends to have this attitude that an object is an object is an object is an object. All objects are of equal value, and there's this kind of tacit assumption that they never age. Mm. The data life cycle somehow doesn't happen to objects. And intuitively, I thought, well, that's nonsense. So you must have old objects with low access rates, and what do you do with them? So object storage is cheap, and you, the suppliers are happy for you to have petabytes and petabytes of this stuff. But when it reaches the exabyte level, and petabytes of objects are just basically useless and never accessed, I figure, put them off. Stream them off to table, something low cost, so you don't lose them, but they're there somehow when you do need them. I think that tacit, tacit assumption that you don't need to bleed off old objects still exists. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, you know, I think I think it's uh, it's just part of ILM, right? So information lifecycle management, as we know, it's no different in object land. So you bring up a good point. It's something that until reading that article, I never I never actually thought about. But yeah, uh, I've actually had to deal with tons of objects. Sorry, Brent, but the you know one of the big things, uh, in it, I agree with you, Chris. Uh, however, we see somebody like um, Amazon who says you can take your objects that are primary and let them go to sleep into something like Glacier. Uh, and it's, you know, they've been very secretive about that. There's a couple of hints around it. But they've been very secretive around the technology that, that is Glacier and showing that long-term it's cheaper than tape. On top of that, you know, a tape gets to be 10 years old and you want to pull an object back. Well, you have like a, you have allegedly, you have like a 50-50 chance that it's actually going to get pulled off the tape, which is where the risk might be. Um, in long-term tape off of object or something where you want to keep it for forever, essentially. And there are tons of businesses that say, keep this everything for forever and just keep moving the data down through cheaper and cheaper tiers. Um, so object or even some sort of cold object, you know, spun down disc, stuff like that, um, seems to feel like the right way to do that over tape for long, like basically the guarantee of long-term retention and return um, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I cover this. I, I'm opposed to what you just argued. I think Spectrologic has a great way of storing objects on tape. The, the, the idea that tape is unreliable, I don't buy that. I think with the normal management of a tape archive, tape is plenty reliable enough. Sure, it's not going to last for 100 years, but, but nothing will except some kind of optical disc engraved in stone. As for Glacier... My understanding, my belief, is that it is tape-based. And Amazon are able to offer a low cost because Amazon's doing what it's usually done and managing its tape vaults extremely efficiently and no doubt getting a very good deal in terms of discounts and so on from whichever vendor supplier. Yeah, see, I, 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 there's a lot of questions around that, right? Because now you're talking <laughs> yes. about... There's a, I mean, the, the idea of pulling something back on Glacier, the timeliness of it, their ability to go grab that object. I mean, is it like, I mean, is it literally just uh, football fields of some cold storage with tapes that are on shelves with barcodes? Um, it doesn't feel like Amazon. Um, and if, it, if that is what Amazon's doing, frankly, uh, I tend to be, I'm, I'm not going to say it you know, like out harshly, but it feels a little embarrassing because I feel like they're smarter than that. Um, so to me, <laughs> to me, I feel like they've, they've invented or created something that they're not sharing that is the lowest cost, again, cost on scale, but the, a, even a lower cost way of doing disk-based uh, backups of some sort. Uh, that's where I feel, I'd, man, I'd love for them to, maybe if they have the guts one day, they'll get on here and tell us all what it is. 
Yeah, so, maybe, maybe they will. That um, was a challenge. That was a call out. That was a challenge. Come on, Werner, tell us. Um, I think they've probably got massive, great tape libraries. So they're yes, they've got barcoded tapes, so they're all sitting in reach of a robotic arm, so they can be picked up and slung in a drive now and again. <laughs> but spin down disc, who knows? Nobody's managed to make that work on a large scale. The discs are inherently unreliable because the damn things are being started up and closed down every so often. The um, drives weigh, a, sorry, the cabinets weigh a ton because they're so closely packed, and that's what made Copan fail. Half the time, the upper floors, the upper, the upper floors of their customers couldn't withstand the weight of the Copan disc drive array. <laughs> SGI's got um, made discs at the moment. I don't know how successful they're being. It just seems to be a, very much of a niche. But I don't know. I don't know. I'm prepared. I really am prepared to find out what's going on. Would love to know more. So I think that's a that's a great segue into kind of the next question, which is, you know, being being inherently curious, trying to find out what the the latest and greatest thing is, or, or maybe the newest news on something. But this space is evolving a million miles a minute. So. How do you stay ahead of the curve and up to date with everything? Is there a daily routine that you have? Do you have specific um, sites that pop up on you know your 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 homepage? I mean, what are you doing to to make sure that you are abreast of everything going on? Well, I, first of all, I'm not abreast. I can try to be as abreast as much as possible. So I'm often warned by friendly PRs, thank you very much, guys, that an announcement is coming up. So I have a calendar which tells me that SGI will be doing something on September 10th. They aren't, but that's hypothetical. Um, I look at a Yahoo Finance site for the storage industry religiously every day because the financial side of things is very, very important. Often the financial pages will print stuff on there that even the suppliers' own websites don't print in their press releases. As a sideline, I have to watch blogs, and set Google alerts to things because the, the, the industry or the, the industry standard method of putting out press releases is not followed uniformly. IBM, for instance, is particularly bad at this. And there are other companies whose press releases follow events by a matter of days, sometimes weeks, sometimes never. You don't make life easy for people like me, guys. Um, it, just keep just trying to spread my hands around, keep tabs on as much as possible. Twitter is vital to my work. It's such a great tool. As you follow the right people on Twitter, you behave reasonably, then you can have dialogues with people, especially by direct, direct messages, which are, which are really, really valuable. You can't abuse it. You often get told, I don't know anything, or push off, this is nothing to do with you, but just keep it up there. Keep your eyes pressed to the Twitter window, and you can find out an awful lot. LinkedIn is good for staff moves, of course recruits and things like that that's good news but basically it's just sitting there ears and eyes wide open knowing a little bit about what's going on and hoping you got a hand on the horses that are dragging the storage industry at 100 miles an hour away from you you don't let go and you get dragged along behind them looking at the dust so speaking of uh you know twitter favorites who who are just a handful of those people that that you do follow that help you enrico signoretti storage bot chris evans um, Story Zeller at EMC, Chad Saycatch, wonderful Chad Saycatch, people in NetApp, lots and lots, too many to mention, but really, people around the industry. Okay, fair enough. Um, and, and then so finally, with, with that little bit, um, it sounds like this is just, you know, good old-fashioned, 
uh, investigative journalism, piecing things together. Um, how many times are people coming to you and saying, hey, Chris, check this out. Um, I don't know if you're aware of it or not. Or we work for this company. Check it out. I'd love for you to take a look at it. It, it happens once a fortnight, perhaps. It's very, very nice when that happens because it means people trust me, which I find I think is hugely important, hugely complimentary. And sometimes the rumors are just straightforward untrue because somebody's heard something which is from somebody else who's put one and one together and made 56. <laughs> but often they are true, either, either in their intent or in their details. Both are extremely valuable. And it's really interesting to find out and I think revealing and worthwhile to find out what companies are up to that sometimes perhaps they'd rather you didn't know. So, for instance, the, the flash ray debacle at NetApp was one of those systems. It was one of those series of events. It's, it's just one of those things where what the company's marketeers and PR advisors would like the message to be is that such variance with events that people inside NetApp and recent leaders of NetApp feel impelled to say something to correct what they think is a misapprehension. And so, I mean, that's, that's part of that, right? So you, got, you, you, you do have people who maybe are, have left a company, leaving a company, working at a company, all these things. You do sometimes get those uh, paparazzi moments and those those nuggets of info where you're like, hmm, where'd that come from? Did the uh, did the did, did one of the camps leak it? Did somebody leak it on purpose <laughs> so that you could write about it and, and help with something? So again, you know, don't uh, we don't need you to reveal your sources, but I assume sometimes some of those sources are pretty pretty interesting. Yes, yeah, sometimes some of those people are very very interesting. Um, it's always a terrific compliment to get solid information, a solid view from somebody senior in a supplier company because it means my nose is putting me in the right direction but it also means I'm trusted and I value that. I can't tell you how much I value that. On the other hand, it has been known that leaks have been fed to people like me to spoil a competitor's chances. The leaks are anonymous. There's no way of finding out who they are. They're hidden behind various email sources and so forth. The information looks solid as a rock. It pegs out with what you can find on the internet. But the net effect is that a particular supplier looks very, very bad. Now, I'm really, really suspicious in situations like that. Uh, I check it out with suppliers. No doubt the suppliers have heart attacks and so on, especially if the information is maliciously wrong which has turned out so to be in one or two cases. And stories don't get printed, but there's often an awful lot of to and fro before that happens. Before I'm a real pain in the neck at times like this, of course, because I need to be convinced that I've been fed a lot of lies or a lot of misapprehensions, and I need to check them out quite carefully. But that's the way it goes, and hopefully I've not put a foot too far wrong in that regard in the past and won't in the future. And so you, you've obviously got some articles you haven't written because they turned out to be false. Um, but yes. let's, if you move on from those, um, you know, there's probably other articles that maybe you haven't written. And you know, my, my assumption around those is there's probably some interesting tech out there that maybe you want to write about, but you can't quite yet because maybe there's just not quite enough information or maybe it's just really not part of what El Reg wants you to do. So you choose to just move on from it. Do you have any stories like that about some of those articles? Um, you know, maybe we can help you get them published. 
<laughs> Actually, I don't have any articles like that. Um, the tech that's out there is pretty well flagged. Um, the most intriguing tech question, I think, at the moment, as an example of this, is what exactly is cross-point memory made of? Is it, is it phase change memory or is it something else? But no doubt we'll find out something around that. There's enough, there's, there's so much science going on here. Say with post-NAN technologies, phase change memory, resistance memory, memory systems and so forth, and scientists cannot not publish. So there's very little that's really secret out there, as long as you know where to look or get pointed in the right direction, which is probably more important. And thank, you know, we're, we're all very thankful for peer review. Um, so is on the flip side of that, what bores you to death? What's the least intriguing technology that you have to deal with day in and out? And you can't, you can't say tape again. I can't say tape. I cannot say file sync and share. <laughs> we're, we're the leading company that's going to revolutionize how files are shared and synchronized amongst endpoint users and their collaboration is encouraged within a corporate control infrastructure. Please, please don't. No more. EMC may have uh, may have agreed with that sentiment, or not. I don't know. I think what they agreed with is that just like just like Chris, um, you know, to a point, maybe consume consumers are a bit confused by it and maybe a bit bored by it as well. So, um, so what what is it that's what do you think is driving not only your boredom with file sync and share, um, but what is it that uh, consumers? Uh, either don't get about it, what's not available to them, or what's not right about the whole, the whole industry? Um, I think file sync and share shares some attributes of the backup industry in that it's almost like a bunch of artisans baking bread or crafting beer or making coffee in a special way. And that if you happen to be in that neighborhood and you happen to be talking to somebody in that area, yeah, then yes, you buy the product. But just because you buy backup from one of 50 vendors doesn't mean that vendor has the world's leading backup product. There are 49 of them down the block selling at least as much backup software. And they're all doing it. It's a sticky product, right? You can't easily change your backup supplier. And I think once you're in file sync and share, you've got a couple of hundred users using a particular product. You can't easily change it. There's an awful lot of inertia. So there you are, lots of companies providing file sync and share. They've all got impressive customer stories. They're all providing useful services to their clients. But none of them, well, very few of them, I'm sorry, are probably going to become world-beating companies. Look at Box. It's just past the 50,000 customer point. It's been a long struggle, and it's just in a long, slow grind of becoming a successful business now. It ain't glamorous anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to something that uh, I, I think is obviously near and dear to your heart. But uh, again, I, I love the article that I just read, Dog Walkers, the San Andreas Fault in the Storage Industry. Um, you know, basically you pontificated on on Flash, software-defined storage, and then, you know, basically I, this, this line, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but how mainstream array giants are toast. This sounds really, oh. this sounds really familiar, Chris. This is, this is paraphrasing, but mainframe disk array vendors expecting to have primary data storage on disk drives, they're toast. Okay. Most of them, I think, have done a damn fine job of converting their products to all flash arrays or flash hybrid arrays, or buying somebody like IBM and EMC with Texas Memory Systems and Extreme I.O., and they've given the stole flash startups pure, solid fire, Camino Violin, 
a real hard time. And for the life of me, I can't really see how there's going to be a real big all-flash array storage startup surviving. Maybe pure if it builds itself up enough momentum and customer presence in the market. But the others, the others, I fear, I fear for them. I really do. And so it's you're, not, it's, 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 different, it's difficult to differentiate in flash. Is it even more difficult to differentiate in software defined? Like, um, where, <laughs> uh, boy, that, that is, that is a, that is a wasp nest. That is, let's, let's walk um, in, let's walk in, walk, let's walk in and I'll, I'll tell you, I have a petrol driven vehicle. And at that point, you don't know whether it's a lawnmower I can sit on, a motorcycle, a Hummer, a tank, a sedan, a panel van, an articulated truck, a spot. You just have no idea. I don't nobody, know what half of those are already. No, nobody follows the petrol-driven vehicle industry, and nobody markets to the petrol. You know, nobody says comes out with a vehicle and says, this is a petrol-defined vehicle. I mean, it's just <laughs> utter bilge. I think the software-defined storage industry, it's relatively fresh idea. And there's lots of people jumping on the software-defined bandwagon thinking, God, this is a slick marketing message. We can stop selling object storage and people have to understand what object is and erasure coding and AP. Oh, no, we can stop doing all that stuff. We're software-defined storage. We talk with Amazon S3 or we've got a file interface and we're software-defined and store petabytes of stuff. Well, it's just bilge. It's just too vague for me. I'm ranting. I should stop at this point. No, you're doing. But, no, you're, you're doing. Read great. the article. It's all. No, right. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you definitely call it out in your article. It's it's very apparent what your thoughts are on software defined storage. So, um, very very good. And so, uh, if you were to look, and this this can be outside of of you know your day to day purview, but if you were to look at the IT landscape today. What do you think is the the hottest and most influential trend, or trends that will will transform you know life as we know it? In IT. Transform life as we know it. In, inside inside enterprise IT, not just you know this is not a this isn't a <laughs> Dean, this isn't a Dean Kamen moment. We're not talking about the segue. <laughs> yeah. uh, we want to talk about it from an enterprise or even mid market and 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 SMB type experience from a IT infrastructure you know technology's perspective. Okay, I'm going to push the boat out here and say I think for the next five to ten years, the biggest single change in IT is going to be that the divide between servers and storage is blurring and going away. And that's because storage arrays, which historically have been places where you wait for data to come because the network's slow and because the disk drive has got to get its head to the right track, that gap in latency between what servers can process data at and what network driver arrays can send data to them is going away. With NAND memory, flash, and with an external PCIe bus using NVMe fabric drivers, we're going to have storage arrays, all flash storage arrays, which sit inside a server's memory address space. And I do say servers, plural, as well as servers possessive. So the DSSD product Atlantis and others, Tejil, they're going, and pure storage are all going this way. They're going to have their all flash arrays, which are physically separate from the servers, but logically they're in those servers' memory address space. And eventually, the way people or applications will access data on those arrays will be exactly the same as the way they access or write data in memory. It's a memory to memory transfer. 
it's done. It's so blindingly fast you won't even realize it. And that, compared to how it's done today, is such an utterly radical transformation. It's, it'll be beyond belief. But there, I'm an optimist, and maybe I'm adding one and one and one together and making 56 instead of three. And is there a, is there a name uh, in your world or yet of this, uh, this memory-based, uh, you know, memory-type architecture uh, for, the, for that industry? Storage memory, I think, is a general name for it. Okay. Whether that whether that'll persist, I don't know. Um, okay. It's, so let's let's uh, go ahead, Chris. Did you have something else to say? No, I I, I didn't want to say anything else about that. Storage uh-huh. memory is fine for me. So so let's talk a little bit about uh, about Chris. And there's you know again when we were researching you, um, there was some we, man we we dug and dug and we found the bottom of the internet. And on the bottom of the internet was even more articles written by Chris Malore that were not on the register. The bottom uh, of the internet. You're talking sludge then. Yes. Uh, stuff, stuff stored on tape. And, um, you, you know, it turns out that you, uh, you might be, uh, as well as being a prolific writer, you might be a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Because what I see in your world is um, uh, luxury, exotic cars and rock climbing. Um, so, you know, we want to talk a little, we, we're not sure how those tie into storage other than, uh, your, you know, your day job, you, you use what you've learned, um, while hanging off of a cliff to try to, you know, break people out of their day jobs. Um, so you've got books on rock climbing, you've got books about car buying, you've got guides on car buying. Uh, so first with rock climbing. Um, yeah. At school, I got thrown out. I got uh, more or less thrown out of school because I was useless. So my parents sent me to some character building, outward bound sort of camp, you know, cold showers in the morning and that sort of thing. And they took us, the instructors there took us rock climbing as one of the things they did. And boy, did I like that. I thought that was cool. That was really great stuff. Um, Once I got started working for people like Digital Equipment Corporation and so forth. I got that wonderful invention called the company car. These things can be driven fast, you know. (laughs) You don't have to pay the insurance or the petrol on them. So the ideal weekend was driving to some sea cliff or mountain cliff, going rock climbing and then coming back again. And we just, I was happy, lucky enough to be with some other people in a similar bent. And we just drove like hell, climbed like hell and came back in the same day. (laughs) And eventually got enough money to buy a little sports car, a little 944. These things are quite reasonable. I was amazed. And boy, do they go fast. And they're one of the few exotic cars that are actually a daily driver as well. They carry luggage. They don't break. And boy, do they go fast. German autobahns, bring it on, baby. (laughs) I started thinking about other Porsches. There were lots of glossy-covered coffee table books, but very little in the way of educating you about other various Porsche cars. So I thought, I'll write my own. Then I got into business with some other guy who had a business doing working with car owners clubs, selling polishes and so forth. And he thought we could do little PDF guides and sell them over the internet. So one thing led to another, and there are 60 of them out there now. But they're all getting a little bit dated. They'll probably need updating soon enough. So if ever I stop writing about the storage industry, I'll go back to writing about sports cars instead. Well, you just got yourself, I saw on Twitter, a nice uh, Porsche Carrera 4. Ah, 
Yes, yes, and I, you know, I have to dash soon because I'm going off to North Wales. In it. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, and, and then, real quick, so one of your climbing books was uh, about the, and I'll probably butcher this, but the Albigna Valley in Switzerland. Ah, like, yes. Is that uh, one of your favorite place, if not the favorite place, or is there is there now another that has taken its spot? No, the Albigna Valley and the. the particularly mountain called the Pitts Bedeal, is an absolute favorite because it's extremely steep and high rock without having that alpine snowiness about it. So most of the Alps is mixed climbing. It's snow, it's ice, and it's rock. The Albania Valley and the Pitts Bedeal, it's rock, and it's high, and it's totally, utterly brilliant. So tell me, have you done the Mission Impossible Tom Cruise where you're hanging by your hands in like free, you know, almost in free fall, Oh, yeah, Brent. Oh, yeah, I've done that. In a climbing gym, six feet above the ground, pushing mats underneath. Oh, no, those guys, they're in a different universe. <laughs> Very so, good. So, it, so you're not going to add um, – it sounds like you're not going to add base jumping to your future where you climb up to the top and then jump off and wear your squirrel suit and your flying squirrel suit and <laughs> land on the ground. I've got two resurfers tips. The idea of landing on the ground at anything other than walking speed, no thank you. That's that's awesome. Well, we uh, you know we do respect the fact that you need to drive a hundred miles an hour up to Wales, uh, and we have some other work questions for you. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of dig back into work. Uh, and this time, you know, Brett and I we've talked about this. We both work at EMC, and um, we're gonna we're gonna point the gun squarely at EMC a little bit, right? So um, we've been you know essentially focused on you know if not maniacally redefining our brand, uh, not just being a storage company. We're not your father's storage company, all these kind of things. We've got, we've got all the dip, you know, if there's a industry out there, we've got something that fits in it. It's probably somewhere near the lead. Maybe we hope. Um, and you know, we've got open source and all these other things. So, you know, first of all, first of all, where do you feel like we're doing it right? And where do you feel like we might be missing the mark, in, you know, in your opinion? Uh, I feel EMC, for what, what my opinion is worth, is doing it right in storage much more than virtually anybody else. Um, this is going to sound like sucking up to you, but you guys react so very, very quickly to new things coming along that it's almost unbelievable. And the latest adoption of open source and so forth, that is also unbelievable too and really quick. A little anecdote. I've had people tell me elsewhere in the industry that EMC, ah, they're a bunch of hard driving, paid too much salespeople, going for the throat, doing whatever it takes to get the business. You can't trust a guy from EMC. I'm sorry, Chad. I hope I don't embarrass him. But you stand Chad Sekach up in front of anybody. And that guy, as an ambassador for EMC, is awesome. He's really great. And the more people there are like Chad inside EMC, and I think there are probably are quite a lot of them, the better the company looks. And so, are there uh, quickly? Is there are there other leaders? Uh, we we both you know love Chad like a father mm -hmm. practically. It's probably a little awkward to say on you know here, but we do. Um, is it are there other leaders that you've seen that personify that same? feeling that you have about Chad from an EMC leadership perspective? Um, within EMC, sure. I think Pat Gelsinger is outstanding. What he's been able to do, coming in from Intel, then working in EMC, then going off to VMware, is an outstanding job. 
David Goulden has, this is sounding like an EMC, is a wonderful story, but David Goulden's done a brilliant job from what he's done, the way his career has progressed. As for Jeremy Burton, that smiley guy just seems to be capable of doing more and more and more and more. There have been other people who've gone off, like Donald Donatelli, who went off apparently in a huff, but he's doing quite well now. Chuck was a great blogger. Unfortunately, he's now gone to Oracle. But he's, he jumped to VMware and did some good stuff. It's funny how quickly he turned into a mediocre blogger, by the way. <laughs> I'm just waiting for his first one. There are some other people around the industry, if I could mention a few names, that have been very impressive. I think David Scott at 3PAR and then HP was a very, very good leader. He, did, he, he steered and crewed a very, very good ship with 3PAR. I think Phil Saran at Compellent did an awesome job, a totally awesome job at Compellent. And also, I think he had such a strong sense of responsibility that he stuck around for the mandatory year inside Dell and made sure the handover took place very, very well. Mike Workman at Pillar, really nice guy. Talk to Mike Workman and ask him about fireworks, subaqua photography, brewing wines, raising wiener dogs and ask him about <laughs> ask him about the silhouette of the wiener dog on the old pillar factory in san jose there's a story there to behold there are so many great people around the industry chet and venkatash at atlantis duron at caminario kevin denuccio at violin is a very nice guy he's got a hard road to plow but he's doing it you know the guy just bought seventy-five thousand shares in his own company these days and they've dropped in value 65 plus percent in a year awesome commitment to the company there are too many to mention really mm -hmm. we agree with you i think one of my favorites is actually uh, uh outside of emc and one of the ones i can think of off the top of my head is actually i hope i say his name right uh val berkovicki over at uh ah, netapp yeah the canadian the soft-spoken canadian uh, i seem got, i uh, seem to love those canadians apparently <laughs> he's, he's got velvet gloves on his uh, hands on his hands of steel and occasionally he takes the gloves off he's quite a guy so, Chris, if we bring it back to you know the the um, the rebranding of EMC uh, into this you know this hip kind of new thing that uh, the underground folks like, you know we we've had this movement of, of open sourcing some projects and then offering things that are free and frictionless, right? That are mm -hmm. free, unlimited use, right? So, Scale I/O, ECS, Viper, the virtual VNX, whatever it is. Um, how do you how do you think? that is resonating in the community. Well, this is very, very new. Um, Viper, for instance, about 12 months ago, nine months ago, I thought Viper was going to be kicked into touch and slowly forgotten about. Instead, it is what it is today, and it's been used an awful lot. For instance, with the vCloud Air storage service, it's used there. It's absolutely amazing what's going on. I think we're all getting our heads around EMC changing so very, very quickly. And some of us are thinking, well, this is a very odd federation of companies. I mean, if you started out to plan a storage plus company, would you end up with the EMC federation with Pivotal, VirtuStream, VMware, and so on? But it is what it is. You've obviously got some strengths from working together. But other companies are splitting up. HP split up, Symantec split up, other companies are splitting up as well. So where does IBM, sorry, where does EMC, that's it. EMC is the IBM of the storage industry. It's as <laughs> big as that. Where does EMC go from here? We just don't know. We wait with bated breath. 
Yeah. So let's let's talk about um, let's talk about that. So you know, one thing is when when you look at uh, you know the the federation and all the things in general, uh, and then you talk about VMware and all the current article, all the stuff that's going on, right? The activist investors, he who shall not be named, that kind of stuff. Um, you have a blog post from just early August talking about what you think the shakeup might be. Obviously, it's been you know, it's barely been two months. How do you how do you still feel about this whole thing? What are your expectations of what may or may not happen? Uh, you know, how do you, do you still believe what you thought even sixty days ago? No, Brian, I don't. Um, the 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 idea of an EMC merger with HP might still happen. I got I heard that it didn't happen at the time because Meg Whitman and Joe Tucci looked across the table at each other and said, "Who works for who?" And neither of them fancied either alternative. <laughs> Um, the latest rumor is that Pivotal will get sold off. Uh, wonderful. So EMC will get some cash from that, distribute it to shareholders, including Elliott Management, who might then go away and cost in it elsewhere. But so you sell off Pivotal. Uh, is it a wholesale sale? Do you retain 80%? Do you retain 50%? It's so much going on. Um, a series of leaks that went into Recode seem to have stopped happening. So perhaps somebody's plugged a leak or somebody's stopped something happening that they didn't want to happen, like VMware buying EMC, which seemed to be what those leaks were about. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen next. It's just, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure, though, that Joe Tucci will pull a hugely impressive rabbit out of the hat. <laughs> well, mind you, I hope he pulls a hugely impressive rabbit out of the hat because there'll be so much to write about then other than Joe going off into the sunset to play golf while X, Y, Z happens. No, I think that, that's certainly true. Joe's been been trying to transform the company to make sure that it's in a better spot than it, than it, than it was when he came. Um, so, you know, the, the predictions are that he'll be off into the sunset um, you know, fairly soon, but we don't know. So, Chris, if, we, if with your, you know, long tenure in the industry, um, the things you've seen us try to do to, to separate ourselves, to kind of evolve from the traditional storage company, if you were to grab your crystal ball, right, uh, where do you see EMC in the next, let's call it five years and ten years out? It's I know it's a tough one. It's, it's so tough because the, the federation could be split. Sure. Let's, let's, let's say Joe takes a hike. Uh, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm in no way dismissive of Joe Tucci. He's probably the single most impressive person in the storage industry as a business leader ever. But say he does take a hike and other people take over and they have to deal with other pressures and starts to the operation don't perform as well as others, then the whole federation could get split off and sold to bits. The EMC part, just looking at the EMC integrated inf information infrastructure part, I think is an extraordinarily strong storage company. I can't think of any other storage company that's making the transition from disk drive arrays to software-defined, software-driven storage and to flash memory and beyond than EMC. Things like DSSD, Scale.io, Extreme.io, the whole ECS thing, that no other storage company has got the breadth of stuff that's going on and has 
putting so much on the line to make sure the company survives and prospers. It may prosper at a lower rate. I mean, Symmetrics and VNX a couple of years ago, that might well have been the high point for EMC II revenues. I don't know. There most probably will be a dip, but I'm sure it'll rise up again because you guys, you guys are just awesome. I'm sorry I'm not being paid to say this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we didn't we, fly you into the podcast. Yeah, we have uh, we, we have no budget, so I like I I think I have to skip lunch today just to be able to do this. So it's <laughs> it's a low budget operation. So um, it, we've talked about II, right? Let's talk about the other the other elephant in the room. Um, that's those guys over at VMware. Um, they're, mm. they're, they're a really pretty elephant. Um, so again, same question. Um, first question is, I mean, fr fresh out of VMworld, where are they winning? And where are they missing the mark? Right. I think I don't think they're winning in networking. I think VMware are staggeringly successful at virtualizing the server. And they look to be doing a really good job at taking on board containers as well. Nobody can count VMware out in application running in virtualized servers. In storage, they they've not punched at their weight. They've punched below their weight especially with virtual sound, also with Evo fail. I mean, for goodness sake, it you didn't put a dent in, 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 in Nutanix and SimpliVity and Maxter and the others. They didn't miss a beat, did they? Well, you, I mean, it, it, it's actually Evo rail, but <laughs> oh, oh, um, yeah, just in case you didn't know for sure. Um, mistake there. But uh, yeah, it's probably, just a, it's probably just a language barrier thing. But the, um, so with, with, tell, tell me why Evo rail, uh, Evo failed. In your opinion, I think because VMware didn't take a look. Either it didn't take a look at what the other hyperconverged infrastructure appliance vendors were doing, or it took a look and decided it did not want to compete there for one reason or another. But to bring out a virtual SAN that doesn't have deduplication and missed a few other data management features while its competition was bringing out those features is just, I'm sorry. It just seems to me, this is common sense speaking again, it just seems to me missing the mark so comprehensively. What, what are you doing bringing out an inferior product like that? It's good enough for your customers, but for goodness sake, there's better stuff out there. It let them down. EMC wouldn't have done that with a physical or a software-defined storage product of its own. It never has, has it? Bizarre. Uh, and so it, it, it'll be interesting to see. Um, you know, So it sounds like a lot of your basis for that has to do with uh, vSAN features again, which you said is, a, is not punching up to its weight. So for vSAN to be successful, um, is there, what are you expecting more from it? I think 6.1 was a great release. 6.2 6 brings in deduplication. And when possibly it starts using all flashed servers better, and possibly having storage memory resources, then vSAN will be a totally furious product because you've got the VMware customer base with, with VMware servers and so forth. And this thing is just such a natural fit there. The layering is so sticky. How can it not be successful? And so, and then you're talking about, uh, you talked also about NSX maybe not being as successful as ESX was. You know, we heard, well, I don't know if it was 18 months ago or whatever, however long ago that was, that they were going to do the same thing to the network that they did to compute as far mm. as virtualizing it. If you're saying today that they're not successful at that, 
what are they missing or what do they still need to do to be successful in your mind? I feel I'm speaking from a position of ignorance here because I don't know so much about networking. My intuition says that VMware punched below its weight in virtual networking because of Cisco, because of the Cisco stuff in the VCE operation and so on. I think that, for example, HP's ProCurve area was more successful as networking competition to Cisco than VMware's virtual networking has been. I hope that VMware unleashes itself and does more. But for specifics, I just don't know. For instance, Layer 2 or Layer 3 or, or this route of protocol or that route of, route of protocol, it's away from my comfort zone. I don't have enough knowledge to speak properly about it. I mean, but that's fine that you're saying this. And from your opinion of the industry, um, you, uh, you're you not seeing them pull the kind of weight that you would expect. You know, when you see somebody like Cisco having 60 to 70 plus percent of the market uh, yeah, in what they do, uh, and VMware having 60, 70% of their market in what they do as a core business, you're simply yep, saying right. that exactly they haven't that. pulled that weight into the next thing they're doing. Yeah. One, okay. one of the things that made server commoditization happen so strongly has been vSphere. Because underneath the vSphere platform, you run COT server, it's x86, and you could care less whether it's Supermicro or Dell or whoever. With networking, that effect doesn't seem to have happened. With, with virtual networking, Cisco should be commoditized to hell. And it's not happening. Cisco's defended its position darn well. And the second most impressive IT leader in the industry is probably John Chambers. Well, he's on the way out now, so maybe there's a window of opportunity. And maybe because Cisco and EMC are now at more than arm's length, VMware will unleash its creative activities there and start doing really good stuff. It should. It should commoditize this business to hell. It's been a refuge for high-priced kit for far too long. So the last little bit of, of VMworld, and, and, and thanks for the insight, Chris. That's really good. Um, you saw Chad present. Uh, his, <laughs> and he even took a picture of it and put it on Twitter, which was, was pretty hilarious. But, um, how was, how was his session and did your face really melt? No, my face didn't melt, but the ground he covered in that hour was, it, it was phenomenal. And um, some people told me afterwards, it wasn't a classic chat session. It didn't overrun by, by an hour or half an hour. <laughs> But he covered an awful lot of ground. And the thing that I came away with most from that session was how much respect the audience had for him and for what he said. They gave him a lot of leeway. He took a lot of leeway. But it was mutual respect across the floor in space. It was a pretty wonderful session to be on. And so, you know, we, we, uh, we both saw the same session. And you and I talked a little bit about Chad. Um, I understand you haven't met. Ah, I'm going to. He's coming to London in the next few weeks. I have really? a meeting booked with him. Well, he, oh, that's fantastic because we were going to call out on here. He sometimes uses this podcast to fall asleep. Um, and so assuming he hadn't fallen asleep yet, we were going to tell him to make sure you guys had met. Good. So maybe he'll hear it anyways. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, again, Chris, fantastic. Uh, is there is there any last, you know, last parting words you have regarding you know, things you saw at VMworld that you thought were, um, you know, compelling to you, you thought were interesting, and or, mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. There, there were vehicles at VMworld. There was a Porsche KN, there was an Audi something or other, there was a 
Next Center had a VW bus, but the coolest vehicle in the whole show was the Back to the Future DeLorean on the rubric stand. And there's rubric telling us, you don't need to do backups. You don't need to do snapshots. We'll store all your data. We'll keep metadata about everything, and you can recover back to any single point in time. You can throw away the entire data protection industry. My goodness me. I'm not sure if that's for real, but boy, is it a ballsy comment to make and a ballsy way to start out as a startup. Great stuff. What an industry. A very, very interesting startup. Uh, and uh, saw Chris Wall went over there. I hung out with uh, 2D Chris Wall for a little bit. He and I, um, we, we played a little ping pong. He's not very good, um, <laughs> uh, but we did play ping pong. So, uh, Chris, we can't thank you enough for all of your time uh, for delaying your trip into um, whatever that location was that you're headed to in your Porsche. Um, we appreciate everything you've said and your candor. Um, and of course, you know, we appreciate everything you do for, for the industry. So, um, you know, tell us if, if people want to get a hold of you and reach out to you and give you, uh, uh, businesses you should look at, uh, yell at you for being wrong or any of that. Uh, Twitter's obviously a pretty good place, right? Mm, Twitter's a good place. Also, every article I have on the reg, there's an email link from my author name on it. Send an email. Right. I'll get it. So the register.co.uk or just search for L reg, um, you know, books, you, you obviously everybody can go look at the books that you've written, go to the reg. Are there any books that you recommend for people, um, to kind of read that have to do with this industry? Oh, no, no. So, okay. Mark Farley's written a good few, which are worth, worth doing. Um, <laughs> I'll do the opposite. I have a particular dislike to the dummy's guide to anything. Okay. I think so, those are generally marketing rubbish. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, we we were just joking about this the other day. You know, the the uh, nobody I know, n none of the kids I know know what Cliff's notes are. They just know what the dummy's guide to whatever is, which is the yeah. same basic thing. Um, and so, yeah, I agree with you. Although they do give them out at every convention, there's at least one they, company that's like they do. the dummy's guide do. to uh, flash storage or whatever. Yeah, so. I think the industry is changing too quickly. That somebody wrote a book about fiber channel and how it can access sounds. Well, it's not; it's out of date. Almost two years after it's written, it's out of date. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Which is why oh. they should just go read articles and just look for the last six months, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, click, just click over to the register. So that's, again, Chris, thank you so much. Um, on behalf of myself, uh, again, you know, thank, thank you everybody for listening to The Hot Aisle. Uh, my name is Brian Carpenter. My name is Brent Piatti. And Chris, uh, we have Chris Malore from the register. Thank you, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. Good luck with the podcast, and thank you very much for having me on. Thank you, everybody.